Uh, I forgot to announce at the beginning of all things, uh, a little bit of congratulations uh, to a couple of people. Number one, I hear through the grapevine that we have a, is it three-time gold medal? Is, or Yes? Anna Lynn, is that correct? She's like still waking up. What are you talking about right now? Three, was it yesterday you got three gold medals at, was it, was it choir yesterday? That's what you did, yeah. Vocal performance, yes, absolutely. So congratulations to her. And then she's pointing that way. What else am I saying? Ethan. Okay, Ethan and Kariana, both as well. Now, guys, tell me, help me out here. How many medals and what were they? She got one. She said it so excitedly, too, like, eh, one for an I mean, I guess no three, but yes. And then Ethan, three medals as well. Awesome, guy. Look at that. Congratulations to you guys. And then I heard as well, also through the grapevine, that we have amongst us someone who has been accepted into college. And so we would like to say a very big congratulations to Scarlett. Now, it, now, I have to admit, it pains me just a bit to say this, but she was accepted to Purdue. Mm. No, really and truly, that is so cool. Like, if my, if my kiddo, if my kiddo was accepted into Purdue, I'd be doing, I mean, like, I wouldn't be doing backflips because I'd probably have to pay for it, but maybe she's really smart. Yes, I'm coming back over here. Yes. No! Please, please don't tell me that this church is becoming a Purdue church. Please don't tell me this. I can't handle this at all. We're also very excited and glad this morning to see a couple of people who had surgeries this past week, and Jason and Kenny both. Thank you guys for being here. Glad to see that you're recovering very well. All right, I think I'm past the congratulations and announcements and get wells and how you do's and all that stuff. So we're going to get into things this morning. We are going to finish our series this morning on rebrand. Uh, again, we've been talking for a couple of weeks now. Uh, what we really should do as the church, I mean, do we really need to repackage and repurpose things uh, as the church? Do we need to make the gospel slicker and sound nicer to people? And in all things, and uh, this morning again, nothing changes. We don't rebrand anything that we are just simply trying to refocus ourselves on what's most important. Refocus ourselves on the mission and the purpose of the church. I came across an article this week that I found uh, particularly interesting and fitting for our discussion today. So let me ask this right off the bat, and I don't do this to come back later and make you feel really guilty about yourselves, but if you do, that's the Holy Spirit. That's how it works, all right? How many of you have ever grumbled or complained before? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, okay, so let me, let me be really specific here. How many of you have grumbled or complained about the church or about church things? Yeah, okay, all right. So I'm glad we have honesty here this morning. That's really wonderful that we have honesty. So this sermon will be particularly fitting, and I think it will be very meaningful. But I want to start with this story first. A man by the name of Ray Ortland uh, wrote an article, and the article was entitled this, How to Wreck Your Church in Just Three Weeks. And he starts it by saying this, week one. Walk into church today and think about how long you've been a member, how much you've sacrificed, how underappreciated you are. 
I mean, take note of every way that you're dissatisfied with your church right now. Take note of every person who displeases you. And at this point, I would step away and I'd say, Here, isn't this a very interesting side note? It's interesting how the number one threat, I'm convinced, the number one obstacle to the unity and the health and the growth of not just individual believers, but the overall health of the church has to do with being offended. Like, like that is the word of our day, right? Like, oh, I'm so offended. I found that to be so offensive. That, that is, guys, I'm, I'm not joking, that is the number one threat to the church. That everybody, not just in the church, but this world, like everybody gets their feelings hurt about something. It's just like, guys, do you not understand that that is Satan grabbing hold of you and pulling you into his trap? That's what he's trying to do. So you taking offense, you being offended with how you perceive that you are being treated. I found this very interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 6 this week. It specifically has to do with uh, Christians who are suing each other and they have a lawsuit against one another. And it says this very interesting thing that I think applies really to the church as a whole in any situation. He says here, Paul does, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. And this is so difficult, but it's so insightful. Why not just accept the injustice between you and another person, between you and another believer, and just leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? I find it very interesting that we sometimes and many times when we get offended, it is the number one enemy of the church. Continuing on with the story here, Meet for coffee this week with another member and, and, and share your heart. Have you ever had those sessions? Like, I just I feel like I really need to share my heart right now to tell you how I'm feeling. Discuss how your church is changing and how you're being left out. Ask your friend who else in the church has concerns, because we want to address these concerns. And we agree together that we must pray about it. Pray about it. Week two. Week two. Send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievance is surfacing in your church. Problems have gone addressed for far too long. Ask them to keep the matter to themselves for the sake of the body. As complaints come in, form them into a petition to demand an accounting from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly and anonymously. Gathering support would be rather easy. I mean, even happy members can be used if you appeal to their sense of fairness. I mean, that your side deserves a hearing. Week three. When the growing enthusiasm, ill-defined but powerful, reaches critical mass, confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. Whatever happens from this point on, you have won. And then listen to what he says here, guys, and this is what it's all about today. You have changed the subject in your church from gospel advance to your own grievances. Ouch. Ouch. To some degree, you will get your way. Your church will need three or four years for recovery, but at any future time, you can do it all again. It only takes three weeks. 
And while this simple and ironic story likely prompts a little bit of a chuckle in us, possibly, if we're really honest, there's another feeling inside of us, deep within the pit of our stomach, that is felt. When we realize that it hits just a little too close to home. It has way too much truth to it to just be a work of fiction. You see, the reason that this story is tragically comical but painfully true all at the same time is because it painstakingly and honestly details how the church is often tested when it comes to issues of unity that are central to the life of the church. And this issue of unity or disunity, depending on how you look at it, it's not new to the church, guys. Because we have squabbles in the church today, it's not the first squabble that's ever been had in the church. It's been around since the very beginning of the church. So what's the key then to learning how to properly and how to faithfully deal with them in ways that promote and ways that protect the spread of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom? That's what we should be about as the church. Those two things, gospel advance, kingdom growth. Fortunately for us, we have a very prime example. We have a very positive example of how to approach a potentially explosive point, an issue in Acts chapter 6. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you want to pull it up on your phone or if you want to jump into the app, Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. And guys, in Acts chapter 6, for all intents and purposes, there was something lurking in the church that had the potential to wreck the church. Not in three weeks, but right there in that moment. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 6, going to start at verse 1. And it says this, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Doesn't it seem like that is so much the case? When things are going so well, things are smooth, they're going right along, what shows up? Grumbling, complaining, discontent. And here was the discontent, here was the issue at hand. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve, the twelve apostles, called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men from, who are well-respected and they're full of the Spirit and they're full of wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. Everyone liked this idea. Can I just stop for a moment right here? I don't talk about this later in the sermon, so I just want to stop. Everyone liked that idea. I, guys, I've been a part of the church all of my life. I've been at three different churches in ministry. And I am not certain there's ever been a single time that somebody came up on the front of the stage and said, you know what, guys, I have an idea. And everybody in the church went and you go, what? I really like that idea. Never has that happened at any part I've ever been in church of. But it happens here really and truly in Acts chapter 6. Here's an idea, and everybody likes the idea. And they chose the following guys to take care of this food program. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. 
Now, most of the time, we would look at this story and we'd think to ourselves, okay, well, this is the point in Scripture where the apostles select deacons, and this is where we get deacons from, and this is what deacons do. And I guess that wouldn't be wrong, but I think that's a very kind of shallow view of this section of what's going on. Guys, there are some things happening below the surface that we need to dig into. And from the start this morning, we have to recognize that this passage is marked by extreme, unheard of, countercultural service, humility, sacrifice, and surrender. And you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, Ryan, they picked seven guys to wait tables. I don't really see a whole lot going on there of countercultural humility, sacrifice, surrender, and service. Now, me personally, I've read this section of scripture, these seven verses, more times than I can count. And spending time studying in depth over the last couple weeks, I saw this, these seven verses in a way that I had never seen them before. There is a massive lesson to be learned and a core commitment to be caught in these few verses here. And it's not about deacons. It's not about food programs. There's something else that's going on. I'm actually convinced that it holds several keys and insights into how we are to exist as the church and how we are to conduct ourselves as believers in the church, to protect and to maintain the unity of the church. I've said it before and I've said it many times and I will say it many times more. If the unity of the church goes, the church goes. That's it. If we are not unified and we are not together, we're not all pulling in the same direction, the church is going nowhere. Guys, this section right here, these seven short verses in Acts, simply cannot be understated. So what in the world is going on in Acts 6 that is so important, that is so noteworthy? The church is growing at an unprecedented pace. As Acts 6 verse 1 tells us, the believers rapidly multiplied. And while that would seem very noteworthy, while it may seem like something we should probably keep our eyes on, that is not the noteworthy activity that I'm talking about here in this section I believe there's something even more powerful. There's something potentially destructive brewing below the surface. One pastor has put it this way. He says this, it's it's amazing that while revival is going on, while the believers are rapidly multiplying and people are being saved, those who are already saved are grumbling and complaining. Because you'll notice exactly what happens. Not only is it rapidly multiplying, but the very next thing it says is that there were rumblings of discontent. Some people were not happy. In these opening verses of chapter 6, there's more going on than initially meets the eye. First of all, we need to notice some things, and we need to give some context about what's happening here in this section We need to recognize that there was a very difficult and a very dangerous situation that was happening in this church. The apostles are faced with a very difficult context that they find themselves in. First of all, there's a very practical problem staring the apostles in the face. It says here again, the Greek-speaking believers come to the apostles and they start complaining. They start grumbling. And they essentially say this, guess what? Our widows are not being fed like the Hebrew-speaking widows are being fed. At least we perceive that that's the case. We perceived and we are very offended by this that is happening. It's a very practical problem. And, and, And if you'll notice, we've talked here in roughly about three chapters of Acts. 
Acts 4, 5, and 6 is where we spent the last three weeks, but we've also brought Acts 2 into that. And we have come from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 where it says there was no need among them. But here's what always happens. As, as the church grows rapidly, as the church begins to expand by the thousands, it becomes increasingly difficult to get a handle on the demands of the people and the needs of the people in that church. There is ever-increasing growth in this church in Acts, and, but it comes with ever-increasing conflict. What are they essentially saying? Our needs are not being met. And here's what I notice so often, not just about this church here in Acts, but about the church for all of time. You better believe that whenever and wherever the gospel is being advanced in and by the church, conflict is not far behind. Because you know why? Satan loves conflict. Satan loves to plant seeds of conflict everywhere that he can because you know what? He hates growth. And he hates the growth of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. And he will do... Guess what, guys? Satan is not very hard to figure out. Like, his tricks are not really new at all. He uses the same things today that he did 2,000 years ago. Conflict, I'm convinced, is his number one asset that he has. And it works so well. When you get growth in size, when you get growth in diversity, and that's what was happening, both of these things were happening in the church at Jerusalem. They were growing in numbers, and they were growing by diversity. They were people showing up at church, and they were like, you do not look like me. You do not talk like me. You do not think like me. I don't know what to do with myself right now. When you do that and you grow in that way, it brings stress and is many times a greater challenge than decline. This sounds really weird, and I, I don't want you to take this at face value, but you... You sometimes would almost rather have your church go into decline rather than to start to grow because conflict comes when things start to grow and they start to advance and they start to mature and they start to become healthy. I mean, think about a growing company with customers who have constant demands, who have constant wishes and the inability of that company to meet those demands and to meet those dreams. What happens when a company says, we just really can't service you anymore. We can't meet your needs and demands. It gets really messy really quick. The customer lets the, the company know, all right, you're going to hear from me now. Here in Acts 6, the customers, if you will, are not happy because they perceive that their needs are not being met. And, and what we don't really often consider, and what I don't want to spend a whole, whole lot of time on, but to say a little bit about is, add on top of that a situation that is loaded with cultural and with ethnic tensions, and it has the makings of a combustible situation. I mean, I think about myself, and I'm like, if I was back in the church in Acts chapter 6, and this came to me, what in the world would I do? I mean, I, I, I would probably be doing a whole lot of, um, uh, but these guys don't. They know exactly what they need to do. In Acts chapter 6, here's what's so fascinating to me. We have a minority group. And when I say minority, I actually and really mean a minority of a minority. Number one, this was a group of widows. All right? To be classified as a widow in Jewish society, you had to be 60 years old or older. That's probably not a whole lot of people in this Jewish population. Secondly, not only are they a group of widows, we're told that they are a group, Greek-speaking group of widows. Hellenists is what they are also called further reducing the size of that group. We've gone from just a small group of widows to a small group of Greek-speaking widows. 
Jerusalem was about 80% Hebrew Jewish at that time, and it was about 10 to 20% Greek speaking. Do you know what would have been really easy for the apostles to do in this situation? They would have and could have easily squashed their complaints. They could have said, you know what? They don't. I'm like, what do we got here? Like 10 ladies? What, what's going to happen if we just say, be gone with you? Nobody's going to squawk at that. Nobody's going to even know that we told them that. But they do not do that because to do so would have jeopardized the reputation of the church. It would have dimmed the glory of Christ and it would have dimmed the witness of the gospel. And the apostles knew that very clearly in their minds. We have to handle this situation rightly or everything can go wrong. So with that background, we not only have a very practical problem, people aren't getting fed, meeting the needs of the masses, we have a, a, a really big, and to me this is a huge issue, and the issue of this, these first seven verses, we have a unity problem. We have a unity problem, and, and as you walk through these seven verses, it is handled skillfully by the apostles. I, guys, if you would read this again about four times, you would be like, I don't know, I still don't really see it. This is, this is not a small potatoes moment in the life of the church. It is a critical juncture in the life of the church. The grumbling and the complaining that occurs at the outset of the story is like putting a bundle of dynamite next to one of the pillars of the church. Unity. That's exactly what's being ha- happening in this case. It's not that these women are trying to be malicious. It's not that they're really trying to purposely do this. But by default, what they are really doing is taking a, stick, a, a bundle of dynamite and saying, I'm setting that right next to a pillar of the church. Guys, this could have been a major obstacle to the growth and flourishing of the church, but it turned out quite the opposite, as we're going to talk about in just a bit. If you'll notice, this, this section of Scripture starts out with the growth of the church, and it ends with the further growth of the church, but it could have turned out, oh, so different. Massively different. And here the story cracks are starting to appear in the dam. I mean, you can see them. You're like, this, this is a not good situation. But rather than plug those cracks or plug those holes with toilet paper and bubble gum, the apostles come up with what I think is just, it's genius. Absolute genius. It, it's a spirit-inspired solution is really what it is. It's a solution to a potentially destructive problem. I want to read again verses 2 through 4. The 12 call a meeting of all the believers. And I think this is very important, okay? I don't think that you need in a meeting for every single thing that happens in the church. But when you have issues of unity in the church, all of the church needs to be together to talk about it because it is so destructive. So they pull all the believers together and they say, we should spend our time teaching the word of God and we need to find people to run a food ministry to run a food pantry, to run a food program. Actually, the technical term that's used there is that they say we don't need to be waiting tables, is what they say. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of spirit, full of wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. That's such an important line that we're going to come back to in just a minute. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Notice, Notice what the apostles did not do here in this situation. They, they don't treat the complainers and, and roughly dismiss them out of hand. They don't squash the bug, if you will. They don't create a task force to investigate the demands. They don't then create subcommittees to investigate the investigations of that task force. I've always heard it said this, and I love it, for God so loved the world that he did not send a committee. They didn't do any of that stuff in this situation. 
Here is what's really the highlight of the whole situation, guys. They did not divide the church. They don't pit the Jewish Christians against the Greek-speaking Christians. They don't say, well, we, we Hebrew-speaking Christians, we'll meet in the morning or we'll meet at a time that's really convenient for us, and you can have the leftovers and you can just meet later. They don't do that. They, quite the opposite actually happens. And to me, this is the central part of this. And if we miss this, we really actually miss all seven of the verses here. Guys, it would have been easy to overlook this minuscule minority in the church, but the apostles didn't. And in fact, what does it say that they did? We will give them this responsibility. You know what the apostles did? They had the keys, and they simply said, we're giving the keys over to you. I I tried to think of a good comparison for this, and I don't think it's actually perfect, but it would almost be like this. It would almost be like Republicans walking into the Senate and saying, you know what, guys? We're tired of this fighting. We're tired of this grumbling. We're tired of this complaining. We're tired of this division in us. And so, you know what, you Democrats? Do with it what you will. We'll never see that, number one, all right? But that's kind of sort of what's happening here, but on an a greater level. They hand them the keys to the car. We will give them this responsibility. The apostles and these seven men and the entire church enter into a dance where real leadership, real love, real servanthood is taking place. The gospel will continue to be preached, but at the same time, responsibility will be shared and needs will be met. I think sometimes we think to ourselves, like, what's really the most important thing? Do we want to make sure that people's physical needs are met, or do we want to make sure that their spiritual needs are met? Guys, it's never an either-or. It's a both-and. They go together. They need both of them. Now, there's a tendency, I think, at this part of the story to say, well, how arrogant can those apostles be? I mean, really? Really? What do they say again? We, we need to be doing these things. Preaching and praying. We don't need to be running a food program. We don't need to be waiting tables. Pfft, apostles. I mean, wouldn't it be a really great display of humility for them to wait tables? I, it, it would have been. It would have been good of them to express humility by running a social ministry. It would have been a good PR move for the apostles to protect their image, but it would have been detrimental to the movement, to the gospel, to the kingdom of God. You see, the apostles had big picture thinking going on. What do they say, guys? And really what they're doing here for the church, and I'm convinced they're doing it for us today, we need the same thing, is they are setting priorities. And they say to him, basically, guys, guess what? We think this is important enough, what you've brought to our attention, that we're going to address it, and we're going to give it over to some people, to seven men who are well-respected, to be able to run this food program. But guess what we're going to do? And what we feel God has uniquely called us to do, preach and pray and spread the gospel, is what we need to do. They're setting priorities for the church. As an aside, I just want you to, for a moment to look back to one verse in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 35 says this. There were no needy people among the early believers because those who owned land or houses would sell them. And then listen to what it says. This is so very important. And they would bring the money from those sales to the apostles to give to those who were in need. Guys, there is a very real sense that up until Acts chapter 6, the apostles were highly 
involved in meeting the needs of the community and the church. They absolutely were involved in waiting tables. But it's also my belief, and the belief of many people who are smarter than I am, that the apostles started to understand their limits. But guys, we cannot do everything for everybody. We have to hand some of this stuff off. Do you understand what level of humility you have to come to when, you, when you're able to say, I can't do it all? I know it because I'm one of those people that feels like, I've got to do there, got to be there, got to go over there. And then what ends up happening when you're in 15 places at once, you're no good in any of those places. You have to pick the thing that God has called you to do and you have to stay in that lane and you have to go for it. And the apostle said, this is our lane and we're staying in it and we're going to designate seven people to take care of this issue right here. And they'll do a fine job of it. We're convinced of that. We will give them this responsibility. They understood their limits and they stayed secure in what they were called to do. Preach, pray. That's what they understood. Guys, this is so important because like I said, they are setting priorities for the church and what we must maintain today. Is meeting the needs of the outcast and the burden wrong? No. It's good. That's a good intention. It's a good thing to do. But it becomes an issue if it gets in the way of the gospel being proclaimed. The apostles addressed this dilemma with a both-and mindset. They didn't have to play both threats against one another. They didn't have to say, should we have a, a social ministry here? Should we take care of the needs of the people? Or should we have a soul ministry here where we're taking care and proclaiming the gospel? They don't do that. They don't pit both groups against one another, Hebrew and Greek. But they appointed, and did you catch this, what they did? They give these guys responsibility, but did you notice the seven names that they give you? Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas of Antioch. What do those names sound like to you? Most of them, if not all of them, are Greek. Seven Hellenists, seven Greek-speaking people that they put in charge of this ministry to address this need. And here's what they didn't do. They didn't just welcome their opinion. They didn't just entertain their voice because that was really cute. Like, okay, that's really nice. We'll listen to you. They didn't do that. They didn't delegate some menial tasks in them. They deferred to these seven men. And because of that, the word had a chance to spread even further. I mean, think about this for a minute. These apostles, strong leaders in the church, have the humility to defer to others who can give the ministry their proper attention. Let me just say this very quickly. Guys, you are not always right. Guys, you do not always have the best idea. Here's sometimes what I wonder. The voices that you are listening to in the church, are they always just the strongest voices in the church? Or are you also hearing from and accepting and living out some of the minority voices in the church? who have some really great things to say that we don't want to miss. The apostles recognized that the best way to serve the church was to allow others to serve the church as well. Do you realize how humbling that is? Do you realize what an ego check that requires from the apostles? 
And with this one decision, rather than multiply the problem or divide the church, they multiplied and advanced the kingdom of God. These seven guys that we have here in Acts chapter 6, some of them we don't ever, ever hear of from again. They're not just bit players. They're not just grunts who do the work of the church. They're not the ones doing peon work in the church. They played a very powerful role in advancing the gospel. If you just look at Acts chapter 7, one of those guys shows up again, Stephen. Stephen preaches possibly the greatest sermon. It is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, speaking about Jesus and who Jesus is. Acts chapter 8, Philip shows up in Samaria and begins to preach in Samaria, a very non-Jewish territory. He shows up later in Ethiopia, and probably a lot of the reason that the gospel spread in Africa was because of Philip, one of the seven that these apostles chose to do the work of the church. And this is where the most fascinating thing happens. It's where the supernatural outcome takes place and where the story meets us today. This is where it all connects. Verse 7, I want to read again. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Luke, who writes Acts, absolutely loves the harmony that is struck in this precarious moment of the church. Widows are cared for, and the word of God was preached. Both of them are utterly, utterly crucial. And the mishandling of either could have resulted in the ministry of the church being crippled and the explosive growth stopped. But the triumph over this in-house problem resulted in a new breakthrough of evangelistic power, so much so that did you notice the very last line that I read in verse 7? Don't miss it. You would be tempted to look over it and be like, what? Okay, so great. There are three things that happen in verse 7. God's message continued to spread. That's what we want to happen. Many believers come to the church. They're greatly increased. Yes, that's what we want to happen too. Don't miss the third thing. Many of the Jewish priests were converted too because of what happened in the church in Acts chapter 6. Priests who had been hostile to the message of Jesus Christ are now transformed and they're coming to the faith. And guys, it all came from the courage and the sacrifice and the humility and the surrender, not only of the apostles, but these seven men who were appointed for what we would call a seemingly menial task. And the attitude of these seven men is embodied in, in, in one of them, Stephen. And here's what I get when I look at Stephen. Specifically here in this first part of Acts chapter 6, nothing is below Stephen. I mean, by all accounts, Stephen was a great leader. He was well-respected. He likely already held a position of influence or to some degree had already proven himself. To put it plainly, Stephen was ready for a promotion. I'm ready to step up to the big leagues, guys. But what in the world does Stephen get instead? A seeming demotion. I really have to believe that waiting tables was not the first thing on Stephen's mind. It certainly was not below him, though. And with that attitude, he screams loudly what everyone in this story, as well as you and I, need to hear. And I want to say it really plainly. If you write nothing else down this morning, write this down, put a box around it, draw arrows to it, do whatever you need to do to highlight it, and then stick it somewhere that you're going to see it. And you ready for it? 
It's not about me. That's what Stephen says. That's what the apostles say. That's what the other six guys say who serve and await tables. It's not about me. The apostles communicated with their action, but it's also what Stephen exudes in his very spirit. It says a lot to me about how Stephen is introduced to us. So often, what we do with Stephen is we just mark him, oh yeah, Stephen, that guy, Acts 7, he was the first martyr of the church, right? Yeah, that's right, he was. But don't miss the way that Stephen is introduced to us, how he shows up on the scene in Scripture. He didn't show up in Scripture as a martyr of the church. Instead, he steps onto the stage of Scripture as a servant. And I don't believe it's a mistake, and here's why. I believe God is revealing something to us in Stephen and in this whole situation in Acts chapter 6. He's revealing a foundational commitment of the church. It's actually one of the core commitments of a Christian and of the church. It's a central pillar of the church, and it's this. We serve. We serve when it hurts. We serve when it's uncomfortable. We serve when we don't feel like it. We should exist and move as a people of God in such a way that no one would have anything ill to say about us as it has to do with our service and our love towards one another and towards others. I mean, did Stephen really think it was particularly glamorous to run a food ministry, to wait on tables? I I don't know. Maybe Stephen was looking for more in his life. Maybe he was looking for more authority. Maybe he was looking for more power. Maybe he was looking for more notoriety. But we certainly do not get that impression here in Acts chapter 6 because I don't think that's what defines Stephen at his core. Pure and simple, Stephen was a servant at heart. And nothing and no one was inferior in Stephen's mind. And do you know where in the world Stephen got that mindset from? There's no doubt that washing feet was below Jesus' pay grade. He had no special degree. He had no special certification in foot washing. It wasn't anything particularly enjoyable or inspiring about washing feet, but he did it in humility because he wanted to serve and he wanted to give us a model of what it looks like in the life of someone who is obedient to God's will. Jesus lowered himself to elevate the mission of God and to elevate other people. Acts chapter 6, 7, again, last time. God's message spread. Believers greatly increased. Jewish priests came to the faith. I don't want you to miss the connection here. The gospel made advances and the word was spread because seven guys decided to step into the void and to serve. Seven guys decided to step up and say, it's not about me. All because the apostles had the humility to hand over that leadership and to get out of the way. Do you see what happens when we swallow our pride? Imagine what could happen if we could stop choking on our ego long enough to serve one another, no matter what that called us to do. And in an even greater way, we would serve God's will and we would serve God's ways. Here's my homework for you. Here's my take-home point for you in all of this, in this whole story. I hope you have seen Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7 in a much different light this morning than you ever have. It's not just about deacons. It's about so much more. My homework for you this morning is this. Try doing something this week 
Actually, better yet, try doing something every single week that doesn't exactly get your motor going. Doesn't get you put in the spotlight just so that you can stay humble and you can maintain your servant attitude. And maybe, just maybe, little by little, you will see the gospel advance in your life and in the lives of those around you.